Welcome to Bunta Vista Socialist Club, uh, episode 33. I am Andrew. I'm here with uh, my beloved sweet Theo. Oh, that's so kind of you. Hello. Yeah. Uh, back from Japan. He's now half Japanese because that's how that works. Yeah, I think I'm turning Japanese. Oh. Yeah. Uh, we have with us a guest today. Uh, we have a guest um, who is a, a union rep named Tim. Hi, Tim. Hi. How you doing? I am very well, thanks. Uh, so, Tim has joined us today. He is an officer with the uh, Meat Workers Union in New South Wales, and we wanted to get him on and ask a whole bunch of union-related questions. Yes, and uh, I'll be more than happy to take all those questions, although I have a question of my own. Did anyone ever get back to you about weird red dicks from the last episode? <laughs> weird red dicks, like as in people whose dicks go red? Yeah, yeah. That was a real, like, just need an answer to that one. <laughs> About like ang- angry looking penises. No, yeah, nobody, yeah. nobody weighed in on that. Right. That's disappointing. You have to go back and listen to that episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because for a second there, I was like, "Hmm, how do we get there?" I was saving that one up well before the recording started, <laughs> just to just drop it right in there. Lucy, Lucy has had uh, too much sun and far too many beers today, watching the Super Bowl uh, and feeling incredibly. Uh, gratified and uh, full of full of sour grapes for Tom Brady. Uh, she's very happy, but she needs to have a lie down and drink some water. Uh, so that is where Lucy is. Um, and Ben will probably drop in with us in the next five minutes or so. So uh, when he joins us, we'll all say, hi, Ben. All right. Did you need to do a disclaimer? Yeah, I should do a disclaimer, a very boring disclaimer. Um, so just for the purposes of legality uh, all of my opinions uh, represent entirely my own dipshit thoughts and should not be construed as the opinions of the union i work for and uh, of course i'm not a spokesperson for the union here in a personal capacity thanks very much right. uh just opinions just, just opinions thoughts. we're just talking hey man just got a few opinions just gonna let them out just ideas you're not scared of ideas are you i am frankly i am i am yeah we all are I'm extremely frightened of ideas. I think that's why you created this podcast, so you could engage with the ideas that you're most afraid of in a safe place. That's true. That's that's a fair fair assessment, I think. Uh, so yeah, like uh, part of the reason that we that we asked you to come on the show is, um, yeah, we, we you know obviously we we often kind of um, make reference to unions and how we think that they are good. People should join them. Um, Mm, agreed. Agreed. Uh, you know, very much. That's that's one of the best ways for workers to have a hand in representing themselves. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And obviously, they can be really effective. Um, we had sort of covered some some instances of like pretty pretty public uh, pretty public actions between employers and unions, um, where the unions had found success due to sort of well orchestrated campaigns. There was the mm-hmm. uh, the streets boycott. Um, that, that yes, worked out yep. really well. Um, it's the uh, the mighty AMWU. Yep. Yeah. Um, there was also the Carlton United um, mm-hmm. strike that all worked out well yes. in the end. The the Cub was the Cub uh, ADA or something. I can't remember how many Cub workers there were, but um, also another great AMW victory, but with the addition of the ETU and several other unions. Yep. Um, oh, so. So let me ask you a question about one of those campaigns because it was a thing that came up on the show and um, and we had thoughts about it, but nothing close to an actual answer. Um, sure. So when the streets boycott happened, uh, there obviously it was good because a lot of people that I saw and knew all just went, all right, I guess I'm not buying them anymore. Um, it very clearly, uh, you know, had a had a big effect on their sales. Um, they would have felt a pretty decent impact. Uh, people, mm-hmm. people were taking photos of like the freezer section at supermarkets where all the ice cream at the height of summer is cleared out and the streets stuff is like completely packed full with 50% off. Yeah, um, yeah, so good. So, yeah, I imagine that they felt a really direct financial effect from that action. Uh, and that led to them, you know, backing down and saying, all right, we're going to going to keep everyone on to their rates uh, instead of forcing people to take, what was it, like a 36% pay cut or whatever it was? 
Yeah, actually, it might be a little bit more, um, but uh, dropping them back down to the award rate, which is um, for international listeners, the minimum legal wage for a specific uh, trade. Hmm. And um, and yeah, so I saw people saying after the sort of resolution of that action, um, I saw some people saying, great stuff, now I can try one of those Golden Gay Time ice cream sandwiches or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And I saw a bunch of other people saying, oh, well, fuck those guys. Um, I'm not going to support that company because they tried to, you know, um, do the dirty on all those workers. Yeah. Yeah. Which sort of made me go, well, isn't the whole point as a member of the public of participating in an action like that is, you know, isn't the whole point to show solidarity um, for the workers and say, if you are going to treat your workers like this, I will withdraw my business from you. Um, you will take a financial hit from it that'll be more significant than what you're proposing to recoup from your workers anyway, because I'm sure that's what the decision comes down to at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so when they resolve that action and the workers get what they wanted out of it, do you think people should kind of go back to their relatively normal behavior? Because if a whole bunch of people say, ah, I'm going to continue to not buy these products, are you not just hurting the workers that work at that company at that point? Yeah, I mean, look, really, the, the the question you're asking gets at the heart of you know the, the main problem with with any kind of enterprise under capitalism, which is that you know you, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Um, you know, if we, I, I personally think the right thing to do in that situation is at least to re- return to uh, what you might call normal purchasing levels, purely as a way of showing the the workers that you are supporting them and that you're willing to keep the company afloat and they can continue to get a wage, but. You know, certainly I am sympathetic to people who say, well, actually, look, this company is a heap of shit, isn't it? I mean, look at what they're willing to do. Look at what they would probably do again if they thought they could get away with it. Mm. You know, we shouldn't be supporting them at all. Um, I don't think that enough people are going to say, well, this has turned me off streets forever to to, to absolutely destroy uh, the streets processing factory in Minto. I, I don't think that's a possibility, but I think, you know, Really, that touches on the more broader question of is it ethically possible to consume anything under capitalism? And the answer, of course, is no. Um, and, and that makes it difficult to really answer that particular question. I think ideally if we could say, well, you know, streets clearly have demonstrated that they care not for their workers. Uh, let's initiate a public campaign to transform them into a worker co-op. Uh, then, yes, I'd be like, well, we should definitely be taking that angle. Um, but uh, that, that's not really an option that, that is on the table at the moment. I think there's no easy answer to that question, but I would say my personal point of view is, you know, at least in the short term, buy some streets ice cream and keep the workers going because the reality is that streets have already flagged what their intentions are and they just need to find another legal way to do it. Uh and you may as well give the workers some money in the short run, at least while they're on the, a good bargaining agreement that gives them good wages. Do you think there is a possibility for like um, rehabilitation after punishment? So sort of if you view this as putting them in prison for a little while, right? Like the point is not to be, I think, egregiously uh, cruel towards towards them, but to you know, sensibly retain some sort of I like hope of um, reconciliation. Do you do you see that out of companies often that they will bounce back, or do they, or are they destined to reoffend? Basically, oh, well, look, I mean, they're destined to reoffend is the answer because they operate in a system which incentivizes them to be huge assholes. Um, even the most well-intentioned company will inevitably slide downwards into cutting wages, cutting conditions, looking for ways to increase profits. And there's only one way to increase profits, and that's to decrease wages. And that's the only way to reliably do it. Um, I, I certainly think that we should punish companies who wrong us, but the reality is that we're just punishing them when they wrong us too much. Um, and then they go back to wronging us to the appropriate level and we forget about it. Um <laughs> And and that's like kind of the the overarching issue with the with the whole economic model. But uh, I think companies will always look for ways to cut corners because that's what they have to do. And and I guess I don't blame them for it. I, I'm not saying they have no agency; they definitely have some agency. But 
they operate in a system which encourages them to cut corners and to hurt people in the name of profits. And they'll always do that because there's no other way to reliably make the profits they have to make. And then that really comes down to a question of changing the system uh, in order to stop these people doing it rather than slapping them on the wrist when they do it and then looking the other way when they go right back to it again because that's what they have to do if they want to succeed. Uh, I'm just going to pause for a moment and say, I think we've been joined by our friend Ben. Hello. Hi, Ben. G'day, Ben. Hi, Ben. I'm online. I'm jacked in. Finally jacked in. Jacked for the first time. <laughs> the very first time checking out this internet. It seems pretty good. I've had a bit of a play around. Seems like there's a lot of um, cartoons of uh, big titty women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so far, the internet's looking good. Yeah. What are we doing recording this podcast? Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. You guys should definitely put down your tools. Go, uh, yeah, huge titties. Uh, and all of them completely drawn, often by hand. Mm. Uh, I'd just like to throw it out there as a quick diversion that the um, the ads on porno websites, like, say, Pornhub and that kind of thing, just mm-hmm. just so much more offensive than the actual porno. What do you mean by offensive? Uh, Well, the number of them that seem to be like uh, incestuous versions of popular cartoon family shows. I mean, you're probably getting served those ads. Oh, absolutely. Based on your browsing history. They shouldn't be making it though. I mean, (laughs) it doesn't matter what some sicko wants to look at. You don't have to give it to them. So you just you just go and type incestuous versions of popular cartoon families into Google every day and hope the number is zero. <laughs> yes, I'm ge- generally <laughs> I'm checking to make sure that there's nothing there. When it's not zero, you get you pull out a pen and paper from the drawer and carefully compose the letter to the Sydney Morning Herald. Right. Th- three results. It pulls out a spreadsheet. Uh, Thousand. Mm. There's still right. I'm just out here tallying my incestuous bananas. Anyway, folks, porno on the internet. Check it out. Did you want me to comment on that from a trade union perspective, Andrew? Well, <laughs> ideally. If you can. Ideally. But <laughs> uh, I, I can't. Next question. How much of these cartoonists getting paid per frame? Uh, so, coming back. Coming back to talking. Yeah, the media alliance under this shit. <laughs> uh, so, Ben, we're talking unions, as you're aware. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course... Uh, we were just touching on the difficulty of the old ethical consumption under capitalism. Oh, it's uh, hard. A lot of situations where it ain't that easy. Um, mm. Yeah, I think um, just coming back to what you were talking about a second ago, Tim, that uh, that's um, yeah, like I think at, at the end of the day, people can have any kinds of ideas that they like about um, you know a company's loyalty or allegiance to them or any of that sort of stuff and you can you can get a whole lot of uh, nice rosy scenarios from places that you work often for years at a time when things are going well uh, and then things start not going well and all of those tunes change uh, especially if you are yeah working for any kind of public company because the reality is that um, Exactly like you were saying, the people that are running those companies are responsible to shareholders and shareholders have a single interest, which is returning profit on their investment. Yeah. And even if it, even if it's not shareholders, I mean, like um, some of the worst offenders are, are private companies and, and mum and dad's small business operations. Um, I, I can't tell you how often small business commit some of the most heinous crimes when it comes to underpayment and exploitation that big business simply can't get away with because of their large profile. Um, it's, it's, it's not, I mean, it's very good to blame big, big, big business, blah, 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 blah. and certainly I agree that we should blame big business and, and steal hot chooks from them at every opportunity. But um, I'm not, not saying it's not an official statement. Um, but look, what I, what I would say is that we have seen in our work that small businesses uh, just run roughshod over the obligations because they can't be bothered to find out even what they are. Whereas big business at least have to know what the letter of the law is and they tow it with infuriating precision um, because that's their, that's their model is to work precisely within the lines. Whereas the, the small business model is often just to ignore the lines altogether and just completely screw people over. Um, it's um, Yeah, so just to, to pop that in there. I, w- I will say on a purely anecdotal level that um, 
that is completely true to me as 100% of my experiences working for like businesses with less than 15 people in them mm. uh, have, have come out exactly like that where the person running the business um, seems to have been, it's like people get into this whole place in their mind where they say, ah, I've invested a lot of my money in this business Everybody who's working here must be just as invested uh, in looking after my money as I am. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. And it leads people yeah. to making a lot of very uh, uncool choices and then justifying them in incredibly flimsy ways when you know that mm. at the end of the day, what they're looking after is their money. And I would like to see him. Um, sorry, I was uh, cut you off there. Um, but like, yes, that's exactly right. Um, and and what we find when when we go into small businesses um, is that they often the owners have a very uh, different approach to big business. So a big business will just make sure you know that you're a number in a machine and you know you're replaceable in order to drive your morale down. The small business does the opposite. They feed you home-cooked dinners, you know, they give you lifts, um, that kind of thing. Um, and it's designed to make you feel like you're part of the team and you're part of the family. But at the end of the day, these people don't even know what the award rate is mm. um, and certainly don't know what it would mean to pay that amount of money. So, like, it's still exploitation. It's just a different kind and it has a smiley face on it. Um, and, and that's one of the major issues is that, small businesses can get away with a lot more than big businesses because people are willing to extend love to them um, and, and to humanize them in a way that ultimately they don't deserve any more than, than a megalithic multinational corporation does. And I think in, the, I think in small businesses, um, the frontline employees as well tend to absorb a lot of the incompetence um, and mismanagement of their of their managers. So, like you said, you know they all treat them really, really nicely, and they'll cook them dinners and that sort of thing. Oh, and by the way, um, no, you can't take today off yeah, sick yeah. Um, because we don't have anyone else to run yeah. the desk. And it's like, well, shit, that's not. I mean, from a number of different standpoints, morally, legally, ethically, that's not my problem. Yeah. But because they've, you know, they fed you this bullshit mm. um, on how we're all one big family, yeah. you'll just. You'll pull together and you'll come in today, won't you? Exactly. So, and it's, yeah. it's terrible. I've seen people um, abused like this for, for years sort of thing before they finally go, shit, I have to cut the tie here. And it's like it's not like cutting the tie to a machine. It's cutting the tie to like you've got to walk in mm. and, and quit in front of this person who you will probably affect financially by, by making this decision. Yeah. And like I don't think it's fair for the worker to to. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. Um, and, and look, I think, you know, this is a good time to segue into something that I, I think the union movement could do a lot more of, and that is to promote the development uh, of worker co-ops in Australia, where workers actually have ownership of the business and have the democratic right to decide what they make, how they sell it, how much they sell it for, and what to do with the profits, rather than a top-down hierarchical dictatorship, which is is pretty much a correct description of our current workplace system. Um, I think that sort of thing is something the union movement needs to be looking at a lot more of how to develop worker co-ops, how to build them um, and how to sustain them. And um, that's something that I personally believe would do a lot more to help people in the workplace, not only to feel a sense of ownership, which there's really lacking, um, but also to, to basically just address a lot of the problems that come from the fact that workplaces are fundamentally undemocratic dictatorships where one person in power makes all the decisions. And that means not only wage theft, although clearly it does, but it means um, sexual harassment. Uh, it means sexual favours. It means racism. It means whatever a person's biases and, and horrific vices may be, they are realised in the workplace through that tyrannical hierarchy. And that's something that I think the, the union movement should be working on more, in my opinion. Mm. Well, yeah, and I assume that like unions generally need to be in a stronger position than they are today in order to carry that sort of transformation off. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that's definitely true. Because it's certainly worth noting that, uh, yeah, in Australia, am I correct in understanding that like workplace union memberships are at a historical low in Australia? Yes. Yeah, they are. They are. I mean, they're higher in the... Um in the public sector than the private sector, but not by much. I think it's 10% in the private, sorry, public sector and 
gosh, eight or six percent in the private. It's terrible. Um, there's no two ways about it. Everyone knows it's terrible. Um, for me to tell you it's terrible is not for me to betray some kind of big union secret. It's very open that union membership in Australia is terrible. Um, and it, it's something that the union movement is desperately working to address. Um, and, and there's a lot of ideas being put on the table. Um, but fundamentally, there are a lot of reasons why it's terrible. But Together, they've created a perfect storm of basically making Australia one of the worst unionised first world countries ever, anywhere. And it's really appalling. It's such a shame as well because, I mean, you know, as we were, as we were talking about before the show, um, yeah, the, the Australian Labour Party was built by the union movement, um, mm. which in turn would have given us a lot of the things that we, you know, really... I think so many Australians take for granted today, which is probably also a key element of the whole thing to touch on, is people taking certain conditions for granted. Um, mm, absolutely. I mean, I certainly did before I joined the movement. Um, I had no idea about things like the weekend being a union creation, about the eight-hour day being a union creation, that, that people quite literally fought and, and in some cases, you know, died for to give us the eight-hour day and and because they don't teach it in schools um, and they don't really talk about it in the newspapers. And, I mean, we're all roughly the same age here, right, like 30s-ish. Um, like for us to grow up in Australia, you could not go to school and have someone say to you, all right, here's the history of organized labor and all the benefits it gave us. You know, if you were to open any mainstream newspaper in our formative years and, and even to today, you would not find anything saying like, here's all the benefits of organized labor and what it did for us throughout the centuries. Like you just don't, you don't talk about it. Um, and it's a, it's a real shame and it's a deliberate campaign. Like, I don't want to say a real shame because that, that really downplays how deliberate it's been. But it's a real shame that, that people these days and certainly myself included just don't understand that kind of thing. Yeah, there's, there's very clearly been a long concerted and apparently quite successful campaign by both conservative governments, political parties, and sections of the Australian media, um, yeah, to just demonize all unions. Um, mm, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm sure a lot of people in this country would, uh, based off things in the media and that sort of stuff, their immediate association would be, you know, union thugs. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, that's what I thought growing up. Like, if you'd asked me when I was 15, saying, what is a union? I would have immediately recalled front page news stories of big, white, bearded blokes in high vises at construction sites probably slacking off when they should have been working hmm. and, you know, bullying people into taking money or something. Like, that's what I was presented with during my formative years. So, why wouldn't I take that in as absolute fact? Like, it's in a newspaper, right? Must be true. It. Yeah, it's um, I don't know. It's it's just staggering to me how apparently successful that has been, um, and and relatively coordinated as well. Um, you know, there's, and I think to a certain extent, you can really see that in Australia the the debate around unions, um, particularly in the media, has has just kind of been set into a particular frame now. Uh, yes, and absolutely. I think it's yeah. very hard to change that um, and to change that direction. Um, it, I was reading an article earlier today um, in the Saturday paper uh, that was about, um, you know, the formation of the new Home Affairs Ministry. Um, very long piece, uh, but one of the things that I that I really noticed, um, and I'm like I'm sure it was deliberate, but the author kept referring to um, you know Peter Dutton and uh, Michael Pizzullo, the head. Of, oh, the head yeah. of the yeah that that faceless bureaucrat who basically controls immigration in Australia. Um, yeah, yeah that that. Uh, you know, he kept sort of saying like, oh, so once they'd stopped the boats, then they set about doing this other thing or they, they sort of reframed their priorities as being about this. And it, I was just struck by the number of times in the article 
that the author used the phrase stop the boats um and it was it, it just really struck me as being like okay we, we've now 100 percent adopted the framing of, of mm. how they wanted this to be perceived um and, yeah that's and right. whether or not it was it was an intentional sort of you know nod to the propaganda or or whatever it might have been it, it still sort of really leapt out at me as um because it's a you know it's quite a left-wing paper as well i think yeah it is and a good one i read a lot of yeah. his stuff um but uh, like if t- to, to bring that back to the union movement yes exactly and that's a big problem because it's no longer unions doing the traditional thing of saying you know well look your boss earns x and you earn y what the fuck's that about um that's classic organizing strategy for you there you can try that on in your workplace um yeah, it's it's become like an uphill battle where unions are always on the back foot to prove they're not corrupt, to prove that they're not too militant, to prove that they're not too combative. Um, rather than just being able to do their job, they also have to run constant PR campaigns, even within the workplace. I mean, I uh, in the aftermath of the Sydney train strike or the failed Sydney train strike, I guess we should say, um, rest in peace. Uh, I was on the train home and I was listening to two people talking about it behind me. And there was a lot of reference to the union guys and the union folks, you know, and all those bloody union workers wanted X and Y. Um, And it all came down to the same theme. What they were getting at was that the union was corrupt. People in the union, by virtue of the union's corruption, are also corrupt themselves. Um, And these are just average office workers on their way home on the train, um, and that was a perfectly normal thing for them to say. And it really struck me that, like, this is the battle that the unions are fighting every day is you go in having to prove you're not corrupt. Uh, And it's just maddening, especially, I mean, not a lot of people really understand this, and especially I think the average commuter on the train probably isn't aware of it, but anyone at any time could go and review a union's finances. Mm -hmm anytime they wanted like unions have some of the most onerous reporting requirements for any organization in Australia. Like it's, it is baffling and excruciating how much time unions have to spend accounting for every fucking dollar that they handle. Um, and all those reports have to be provided to the fair work commission and published online. Like any, any one of our members could ring up the office and say, Hey, I want to know how much the secretary gets paid. And I would have to tell them, hmm. Like it's not a, there's no mystery there, you know, like it's, it's a transparent member driven democratic organization um, with some of the most crazy reporting requirements you've ever heard of, but constantly accused of being corrupt and, and, and hiding everything. Like you could know, if I was to call Westpac and say, Hey, listen, um, how much does the bank manager down the road earn? They'd tell me to fuck off. Like I can't, you know, like it's a world of difference and, and, but for some reason, nobody else is afforded this instant understanding of being irredeemably corrupt until proven otherwise. Um, and, and the media and governments have very successfully campaigned on that. And that has become the de facto understanding of unions. And it, it's it's honestly, like my job at the union is largely uh, media and PR and, and um, a lot of that stuff. And having to fight against that messaging every day is, tiring like it is very tiring and and most workers on the ground don't believe it once they've been in the union for a while they're like oh you know fuck that noise but just when you're trying to convince the unorganized workforce which is the majority of it that's the uphill struggle and it's so tiring it seems like there's also uh, there's another problem on like a that the the well is poisoned on a political level as well which makes it very difficult to push stuff through like you know i think the um, conservative government being very good at um, so 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 good at demonising unions that people only have to point out oh well such and such he used to be the head of a union oh, yeah. you know yeah. la- labour men- member used to be the head of a union it's like yeah that's yeah, the fucking exactly. point that's right but you know no, nobody like, does yeah, the same thing with I mean like you know like let's look at you know to to jump 
like neatly into the topic of, say, the re- most recent trade union royal commission. Um, you know, like uh, what's his name was Hayden was running it, Dyson mm-hmm. Hayden. He's a conservative uh, former high court judge. Um, you know, he was on the panel that gave Tony Abbott his Rhodes Scholarship. Yeah. Like that's, I mean, there's no contest between, I mean, no reasonable person could look at the amount of, I'm doing air quotes here in my spare room, corruption that goes on in the union movement compared to the amount of literal, insanely obvious, over-the-top corruption that happens every day in our political system and go, these are exactly the same. I'm using my... You know, oh, the problem is... Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a nasty word. And they've done, you know, like hats off to them, my enemies. They've done such a good job of doing that, uh, that, that it is just like the word union in Australia is now a dirty word, even though this country was built on fucking trade unionism and used to be one of the most militant trade union nations around the world. Um, and in many real ways, everything we have today that we take for granted was built by trade unionists. But now union is a dirty word. And it's, and I think that's changing, but it's just absolutely maddening. And no union officer will tell you different. They'll just constantly tearing their hair out about it. Well, um, yeah, it's interesting you say that because uh, something we were talking about before we got started was, um, yeah, just just the idea that, you know, there's there's been a lot of success around, um, you know, movements like uh, Bernie Sanders and the States um, and particularly around Jeremy Corbyn for Labour in the UK. Um but I, I wonder how much of that is connected to the actual conditions that a lot of young people find themselves living in uh, in those countries. Yeah. Whereas in Australia, um, while there have been, you know, near constant attempts for the last, I want to say, I don't know, like six years or so to strip away any and all um, forms of entitlement and welfare, um, healthcare, mm. all that sort of stuff. Um, granted, a lot of those things are, you know, soundly rejected as soon as people realize it's actually going to affect them and not just a poor student or, or anything. Um, yeah, there's, there's been a lot of attacks on that sort of stuff. And I think that a lot of the time, uh, people in Australia, I think can seem a bit complacent about that stuff because our standard of living, um, is so good because of all of all of the fights and victories that have been had in the past mm. to get us those conditions. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think if you look back historically um, in most countries, union membership is high when times are tough and union membership is low when times are good. And that's not to say it's you know non-existent when times are good, but just generally there's a broad correlation between how well things are doing, um, and, and how many people are inclined to join a union. And I think that's because people understand when times get tough that they have to band together. I mean, you know, that's not exactly novel thinking. I mean, we teach children that in, in fairy tales. Um, but it's really reflected in those rising and falling union membership levels. And because Australia has generally done well recently, there's very little incentive for people to join the union. And that's aided by the fact that we have had a very successful series of uh, legislation which has effectively neutered unions completely legally, um, as well as outsourcing their function to a quote-unquote independent government body, the Fair Work Commission, um, to, to very deliberately reduce people's incentive to want to join a trade union. Um, but I, I think I, I genuinely believe times are changing, and I think that the young people are going to be joining unions in record amounts. And especially, I think we're already seeing that in the union movement. Um, we're getting a lot of young people, fresh blood coming through, and we're recruiting young organisers, and we're recruiting in young people's spaces, and we're moving online in, in ways that would never have been dreamed of five or ten years ago. And that's really exciting. Um, but I think it's going to be in easier as time goes on because things are going to get worse before they get better. Like, and nobody on any side of the political debate is, is concerned about housing affordability, is concerned about really tackling the issues that prevent wage growth 
Um, and these are all things that young people are absolutely going to need addressed. And when they don't see them addressed, they're going to look around for solutions and the union movement is going to be there to offer them. Um, and I think that's going to be a very exciting time. But unfortunately, it means that things are going to really suck for a lot of people. I mean, they already do suck, but they're going to keep sucking, suck harder. <laughs> um, and, and that's not, like overall, that's not pleasant for anyone. But I, I genuinely believe we're on the cusp of a, a turnaround on that front. And, and I think young people are certainly getting a lot more politically motivated. And, and in Australia, one of the reasons that we've seen the union movement being successful with young people is because they've started campaigning on non-workplace issues like refugee rights, marriage equality, that kind of thing, um, all of which are, of course, union business um, and, and always have been. But um, by really selectively campaigning on that, uh, I think they've been able to attract more young people to a movement and then kind of convert them into an understanding of trade unionism and what it means. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen uh, the posters in my workplace that were up before um, uh, before all the marriage equality stuff went through. Um, which, yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, were like, yeah, rainbow rainbow posters that said um, equality is union business. That's and, the one, uh, and I went right on. It's uh, it is. I mean, you know, like exactly, and and I think a lot of people don't appreciate that things like anti-discrimination legislation and equal, equal pay for women and stuff like that were, were delivered by unions. Um, equality always has been union business. And I think that gets lost in the, in the rhetoric of painting unions as, you know, a, a way for big bearded white blokes in high-vis vests to slack off at work. But realistically, the legislative history is clear. I mean, my own union, the Meat Workers Union, was the first union to legally score a victory for equal pay for women, and that's back in 1969. Um, and, and they, you know, unions have been fighting this for ages, and it's really good to see them specifically rebranding on that kind of thing to try and bring more people in because, um, you know, as our social justice consciousness stirs, I guess, um, people looking for ways to make a difference in the world. And one of those, of course, to join your fucking union. Um, and, and I think a lot of people are realizing that. And, and honestly, that's super great and positive. And, and I can't wait to see what, what people do with it. Yeah. I mean, particularly when you look at the other side of the political spectrum where um, they just try and lean so hard on the individuality concept. Everything is about, ah, you, you should be able to achieve by yourself. You should be able to do everything by yourself, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Any success you have is yours and yours alone, completely owned by you, and you shouldn't have to share any of it with anyone. Um, but as you said, when, you know, when economic conditions worsen, when, um, when there are those erosions of like Australia's welfare state because of successive conservative governments, you know, chipping away at Centrelink and Medicare um, and aged care and disability care and all those things. Um, yeah. You yeah. suddenly find all these people looking around and, and seeing other people who are in the same boat as them. Yeah. And it's, um, it's particularly interesting in Australia, I think, because, when you look at things like the slow erosion of Medicare and stuff, um, and you put Medicare in its historical context of the accord, uh, you know, this was like, I guess for our international listeners, the accord was a social contract that the union struck with the, the Hawke and Keating Labor government back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and part of that was that they agreed that they would stop asking for wage rises and going on strikes, and the government agreed to make things like Medicare happen. Um, and so, like, that was a colossal failure in hindsight and a trap in, in blunt terms. Um, but now we're seeing Medicare being attacked and, and trade unions coming to the rescue. Um, and, you know, when young people are seeing, oh, you know, Medicare is being slowly eroded, this isn't fair. Um, and, and that's something that's very unique to Australia is that, you know, the unions kind of backed off to allow for the creation of that. And now they've got to come to its defense um, and, and be militant in its defense in a way that they agreed not to be when it was created. Uh, it's a very weird situation in Australia and it's very different to, to how unions were smashed in places like the US and the UK in the same time period. Um, very weird scenario. Hmm. Well, um, we might, might move to a couple of questions here from our listeners and patrons. Um, God bless you all, you beautiful people. 
Um, yeah, because I think some of the stuff that we've talked about um, does start to touch on some of those issues. Um, I will open with a question that has already been answered because that's the easiest kind. I don't agree. A friend of the show, Carl, says, since leaving my trade and becoming a comfy back office logistics and ops guy, I've let my union involvement slide. Um, I don't really even know which union's jurisdiction I fall under. How do I find out? Great question, Carl. Um, the first thing you should do, of course, is to go to australianunions.org.au uh, and follow the prompts to, say, join your union. Um, the ACTU, which is Australia's peak body for unions, maintains full-time staff whose job it is basically just to get requests about exactly that and hook you up with the right union. Um, they did t- I totally get why it can be daunting to not quite know which union you fall under and, and you know, Gosh, I myself have used the wrong union name when I should have used one that was exactly one letter different. Um, but uh, there are people whose job it is is to help you with that. So go to the Australian Union's website and um, join up, and and they will, you know, it won't happen uh, overnight, but it will happen. Uh, someone will email you back and say, "Hey, your union is X, or your union is Y." Um, off the top of my head, you sound like a National Union of Workers guy. But um, really let the people whose job it is to do that um, make that decision for you. Can I ask a follow-up on that one? Is everybody within Australia covered by a union? Um, Yes. Let me tell you why. Um, You are covered by... there, There are unions whose job it is basically to cover miscellaneous work in almost any industry. Um. In the very rare case that you were to have someone who absolutely fell through the gaps and was clearly not any member of a union um, or something like that, any union can represent you up to the point at which they get challenged. Um, So I could say to you, Theo, I'm now going to represent you. And you would say, Tim, but I am not a butcher. And I would say, I don't really give a shit. Sign up. Um, but I am mm, uh, We were talking about red dicks earlier, so why not? Um, ben, you were supposed to jump in on that, by the way. Um, the, uh, so I don't I, want I to know why. Re- I could represent you up until the point at which someone challenged it. Um, and, and obviously what I'm saying here is, yes, your employer could challenge it. Um, but realistically, that gives you representation until that is sorted. And any union could expand its constitution at any time to include you. So if for some reason we, I don't know, uncovered a whole new form of work that had been happening and we didn't know what it was, the ACTU would convene and say, look, um, it looks like you, you and you are the most likely people to cover this. Talk about amongst yourselves and see which of you is going to expand your constitution. And then they would do it and that would be it. Um, And it's really that simple. Uh, There is always a union for everyone, even if it's a short-term bridge into another union. It, it's absolutely possible. Um, there's never a point at which no one can represent you. So that, does that include like um, all types of casual workers? Oh, of course. Yeah. Casual workers are covered based on, everyone's covered based on their industry, not based on their employment type. Um, the issue of course is that casual workers are some of the least likely to join the union because they have no fucking rights um, and they know it. And so when we say to them, hey, you know, can you please join the union? They say, well, why? You can't, you can't protect me if I get dismissed. And we say, well, sometimes in certain scenarios, but broadly, no. They go, well, exactly. Um, and they know that and work and bosses know that. And that's why they love to keep so many of their workforce casual. Not, I mean, also because it means they dodge out an entitlement so they don't have to pay. But, um, you know, it, it's really casual workers are the hardest to unionize because they're not committed workers, if you understand what I'm saying. Even though they might be working full-time and working 38 hours a week, they are not technically salaried direct employees with entitlements. And that means they're not entitled. That, that It's harder for them to unionize because they've got so much more to lose um, and almost nothing to fall back on. Um, anyway, that's a diversion. The point was, yes, absolutely casual workers can and should join the union because it is one of the best ways to get protection at work and to get transitioned to direct full-time employment. But I suppose as well, 
there's another aspect that's worth thinking about. And I was thinking about this from my own perspective just then as a person who uh, both has before and uh, I'm sure will in the future do do contracting. Um, yes. You know, partly due to the industry I'm in, partly due to individual circumstances. I mean, we we moved interstate at the start of the year and it was just the fastest way for me to start work in a new place. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like it, it would have been very, very hard if I had have been saying, oh, well, I'm going to wait until I get a permanent role offered from somebody, which as we've discussed, are kind of getting getting rarer and rarer all the time anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, whereas if we just wanted to make the move and get started, I could take on a contract. You can start at short notice. Uh, you can finish it at short notice. They can get rid of you at no notice. It's all part of the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And yeah, like I, I have certainly been in the position of saying, oh, I would absolutely join a union if there was any point, like you were saying, uh, as I think yeah, a, a lot absolutely. of people have that perception. But but I suppose uh, another angle to to try and force yourself to consider it on is, um, yeah, uh, 100% of the reason for joining a union shouldn't be what the union can do for you. Yes, that's exactly uh, right. And I'm glad you brought it up. Um, Let me make a few points in in response to that because I've been a contractor for most of my life. Um, This union job, which I've had for two and a half years, is actually my first full-time job and I'm 32 years old. So that's the state of employment in Australia, basically. Um, I deeply appreciate that it sucks to be a contractor. There are are several reasons why a contractor should join the union. Um, One is that it's tax deductible. So lucky you. Um, the second is that if more contractors join the union on mass, it helps to set good wages for that work and it helps to drive wage pressure upwards. Um, and that means that no matter where a boss goes, they hunt around for a contractor. All the contractors are member of the union and they say, I'm not working for less than X dollars an hour. Go fuck yourself. And that means that overall, everyone in industry benefits. Um, and thirdly, uh, you often contractors are taken advantage of and don't know their rights. And when you're a union member, you can get that legal advice and you can press for sham contracting compensation afterwards. Certainly a position I've been in and many contractors are in. I know a lot of people who are my friends who are in sham contracting. Um, They work in an office alongside everyone else who are direct employees on a full-time salary with sick leave and annual leave and so on, but they're contractors and they submit an invoice and they get paid. Um, It's bullshit. It's, it's, It's a fucking crime. It's literally a crime. Um, and it's garbage. And if you're a union member, you can get assistance in pressing that claim. You can get assistance in having your legal fees taken care of because you're a union member, you won't pay for them. Um, and, and it can help you solve that problem. And um, fourthly, yes, what you were just saying, it it's, you know, I don't want to say it's like donating to a charity, but when you pool your money together with other like-minded people, it gives you the ability to affect social change in a way that you couldn't do on your own. And that's a really good way that I think people should think about union membership is that even if it's not giving you any benefits right now, it's still a way of pooling power in favor of good things, of making good things happen in the world, in your local area, in the nation. When people give their money and put their money in one place and start directing it, that's when it starts having an effect. And, and joining a union is a very simple way to do that. And you have a say over where the money goes because a union is a democracy. If you don't like what they're doing with your money, just stand for election and tell them to fucking stop it. Um, it's not like a mystery where it goes. You can look at a report, you know, and, and it's um, it, it's just a good way of making that change. So there I go, I guess, would be some some points in joining the union if you're a contractor. No, well, it's... Uh- very good stuff to know because, like I said, I'd kind of been working off uh, very much the type of assumption you were you were talking about, which is, oh well, I don't really have any protections because uh, because I have signed a contract that says you can terminate my contract at twenty four hours notice, and I have no leave, and I have <laughs> yes. no sick leave, and any of that sort of stuff. Um, which which you know, yeah. I mean, pe- people do know when they go into it, um, but it's mm. not as though if offered like multiple choices people let's say oh yeah don't give me the job with uh with the four weeks of leave don't give me the job with the sick yeah. leave and the carers yeah any of that sort of stuff don't give it 
Oh, I think you're actually, it's flexible, Andrew. It's, um, it's all about oh, yes. flexibility and, um, you know, people just working when they want to work and uh, not being locked down to anything, you know, not being tied down by a job. Flexible. You can negotiate a higher rate for yourself while having absolutely no idea what anyone else earns. <laughs> exactly. And that's, you know, that ties back into what I was saying before about generally upwards wage pressure in industry. It's really helpful if everyone is on board about what the correct rates are. And this is something the Media Alliance is particularly good for. I want to give a shout out to the Media Alliance. Shout out. Um, the Media Alliance represents tons of freelancers because they're in the journalism space. Um, and they have set freelance rates that they recommend everyone charge or hire. And that is a form of making the market work for the workers by saying, you know, there is a, a floor which we will not go below because it's unsustainable. Um, even if you are a freelancer, don't charge less than this because you're undercutting everyone else. And if everyone sticks to that, then it's good. But when people do undercut, then it becomes bad. Um, but that it's still an important function for the union to fulfill in that space, and, and they're doing a good job of it. Um, well, we've got another question here. Uh, I've got quite a few, actually. Um, so, I've got a question from a friend of the show, Chris Didonna, who asks, uh, even when my union eviscerated an enterprise bargaining agreement that was trying to quietly stuff the workforce in our company, we still couldn't get people to sign up. Uh, getting people to care about the union is our biggest hurdle. How do we turn that around? That's a very good question. No one knows the answer to it. There are a lot of takes. Let me give you some of them. Um, I've been in that situation and it sucks. One of the reasons it sucks is that non-union workers know that they're going to reap the benefits of the union hard work, even if they do nothing. There are a lot of union officers, I don't agree with this, but a lot of union officers believe this, that if you're not in the union, you should not get union rates. And what that means is that if you haven't joined the union, you should get paid whatever the company feels like paying you. Um, and if you've joined the union, you get paid the wage that the union has negotiated. A lot of people believe that's the way forward um, to increase union membership. I'm not so hot on that idea. Uh, I think it's unnecessarily divisive when really we want to be unifying the workforce. But I certainly appreciate the financial incentives of that position. And that's one way to help combat that. Um, another thing I would say is that uh, we always struggle with getting people to care about the union because they don't understand or they haven't really been educated on what it means to to have the power to go beyond what the company is offering. They see the union as a, a policeman for the bosses, a cop. Um, the union is a cop. Uh, that and A lot of people believe that. They believe that the union is basically just, um, you know, a Voltron you can call in when the boss is acting up. The the union will slap them around and then disappear again like a magic genie. That is a – some unions have embraced that. Um, I don't believe really in that one, but some unions have embraced it. That leads to people not really understanding that the union can do a lot more than just fix up a bad EBA or fix up an underpayment or take someone to court. Um the union movement has to do a much better job, in my opinion, of communicating that when you have a lot of people in the workforce who are unionized, you can have incredible control in the workplace. You can set incredible wage rates. You can set incredible conditions. You can get leave and public holidays and stuff that you would never get without a lot of union members. And I can tell you for a fact that, you know, we have some sites at work with 85, 90% density, those sites are the best paid, have the best terms and conditions. They have the most days off, the least frantic production levels of any of our sites. And it's not corruption, you know, it's not the magic word corruption that achieved that. It's simply the fact that a bunch of people stood together and said, you know what, fuck you, we're not going to do what you ask us. And the boss said, uh, how about you do it? And they said, well, we'll go on strike. And he said, okay, that's fine. We'll do it. Have it your way. Um, and that's something that the union movement needs to try and educate people about a bit more is that sometimes there's been a focus on 
the union coming in to solve a problem and then disappearing again. And, and it sounds kind of like that's what that scenario is hinting at. Is the union tore up this bad EBA, um, but then it's like, well, where do we go from here? And and it really is about making people understand that it can be so much more than that. It can be so much more. Um, it can really transform a workplace into somewhere that's practically nice to be uh, than just a workplace which just isn't as shit as it could be. Uh, and and I think that's a that's a big change that I I think would help to address that kind of mindset. Uh, ben, do you have any questions? That's a great question. I've just <laughs> I've just missed your voice. I've just missed your voice. That's all. Yeah, I feel like I talk too much, and I've sorry, Ben. Sorry about uh, that. Please never ever apologize for that. I think it's just mainly nothing is straight into my uh, area of expertise, which. As I've said previously, it's only recent, but it is uh, cartoon babes with huge mm. titties. Important areas of study. Um, but if you've got if you've got any questions about those for me, I can answer those. <laughs> if you've got, oh, I'd be interested to know what like you guys think of when you think of unions. And this is my own personal education, but like when you guys think about unions and and your experience with unions, because we're all roughly in the same age bracket and we're all a bunch of white dudes doing a podcast. We presumably have the same understanding of unions, um, so I'd be interested to hear what everyone else thinks about them. I think Ben and I have talked about this like previously because I mean Ben Ben came from like an IT kind of industry, and I'm still in uh, still a, still a developer. And I think like among us, and, and not not me specifically, but there's like this this theory that we're all captains of industry, mm. right? We're all like way way too smart to be in a union <laughs> yes yep and that like um we, yeah we would be like the tall poppies cut down you know and and everyone everyone like programmer to a to a number believes this yeah um like like unions unions are for blue collar workers yeah uh and, and women mm. um now that's not my personal belief, but I think that's like a lot of uh, what, what in our industry kind of goes around. Yeah, my, and I don't know how to combat. That. My experience was definitely that largely programmers, at least, viewed any failure to get like better working conditions or a better wage as being a personal failing on that individual's behalf to not be a good enough developer. You know, like mm. there are people that just have shit programming jobs but everybody else is the the geniuses that were correctly found and they're the ones working out of the amazon giant spheres or whatever and getting paid a million dollars to track the low-level wage workers that actually fund their salaries well, there's, a, yeah. there's an interesting segue to that though which is um something i'm not sure if we touched on this ages ago but i think it's very easy for people in that type of industry where you have a a um, relatively specialized skill in a relatively high wage area for people to be able to get, even if they're not getting the best wage they could get, they're probably usually getting what they think of as a, a good wage or a high wage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then, then you think about stuff like all of the political pushes, um, both in America and here, of all of the kind of like teach everyone how to code in school like the the democrats are all about it in the states and labor are all about it here they're all about saying teach teach kids to code in school and apparently if you if you track that stuff back down they got a lot of um money from companies like silicon valley companies the democrats do to say push this whole thing of getting people to code in school and they get in the mm. position it as it opens up this world of opportunity for it. Uh, but the reality is actually more like, oh, well, if we just provide this to everybody from a really early educational level, we completely devalue this skill. Uh, and we no longer have to take these ununionized workers and pay them monstrous salaries because they're the only people we can actually get to do it. Uh, instead, we yeah, flood exactly. the market with this skill, completely devalue it, and then we can have our way with all these workers. So yet again, it's something where they've managed to paint a very large, you know, corporation CEO as being, um, you know, progressive and altruistic and everything. But if you actually follow the motive for a second, you go, oh, they just don't want to actually have to pay any of you guys anything like this much money to do this job. 
That's the, I think that's, um, that kind of touches on something that the right and the anti-union movement have been really good at. Um, and that is that they are really good at playing the long game. They're really good at it. They set up think tanks, they set up scholarships, you know, they set up policy decisions. Um, they're very good at thinking 30, 40, 50 years ahead and planning for that. And the left, and by that I include the union movement, although there are some right-wing unions, you know, few and far between, but they do exist. Um, the left have broadly always been reactionary in that way. And they always have to scramble to figure it out and scramble to deal with it. Um, and, and, you know, like that kind of, frankly, almost uh, social eugenics thinking on the part of Amazon um, is extremely like indicative of the conservative business, right? Who think decades in advance, you know, they're, they're quite happy to prepare a workforce for 20 years down mm -hmm. the track because that's how long they can afford to think in. And the rest of us are scrabbling around trying to figure out why their Netflix subscription hasn't gone through this month. Um it's, uh, it's, it's something that we need to figure out a better coping strategy for. Well, maybe part of that could just be always being in a union, uh, not just when uh, you shit out of luck and need help. <laughs> well, some, the, there are different models of unionism. And in some countries, like in Brazil, for instance, um, you would automatically join the union for free. You just, you're already part of the union. And if you want extra services from that union, you would have to pay a sliding scale of money, for example. Um, but, you know, there used to be here in Australia, closed shops, you know, no ticket, no start, um, where you had to be in the union if you wanted to work. And of course, that was smashed with the freedom of association laws many years ago. Um, and now you, you know, you absolutely can't do that kind of thing. And it would get you howled out of the Fair Work Commission if you were to even remotely imply that union membership was a good idea on a work site. Um, because the penalties are so severe that it's it's basically just you know the 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 uh, association that dare not speak its name. Uh, so I think we are just about out of time here, um, which is a shame because we've got a lot more questions from listeners and other stuff that we wanted to cover. So um, uh, Theo and I were saying we would really like to get you back on and do a, do a part two of union stuff if you would be into that. Yeah, absolutely. I talk about this stuff all the time, so why not do it in front of a microphone? <laughs> I'd, I'd also love to chat about, um, so the way that I came uh, to be familiar with you, Tim, um, was through an article uh, you wrote for Polygon. Mm. Um, I don't know yes. You've written a few things um, on on uh, video games, and this one was around um, smashing the myth about uh, good guy Valve yes. and like, you know, what people are actually paid uh, create content creators in the industry and all that sort of stuff. Um, I'd highly recommend people to go and check uh, that out um, as as well, uh, because um, I think it has a cross section of a number of things that people uh, would be interested in. Uh, to touch on that, like one of my personal goals and something that I'm hoping to to really get the ball rolling on this year is is unionising the Australian video game industry. Um, that's where I come from. I'm a former game developer. Uh, and I, you know, the Australian games industry is in desperate need of anyone looking after any kind of wages at any time. Uh, and that's something that I'd really like to be a part of and, and um, you know, to, to make happen in this country. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's my own personal goal is just to bring trade unionism and video games together in Australia. And certainly it's something that I wish would happen faster in the US and the UK and Canada and stuff where they make all of our favorite video games because, you know, obviously... I understand it's not the same as working in a coal mine or whatever, but video game employees are horrifically treated um, and they're in desperate need of someone to protect them. And hopefully, you know, that's the sort of thing that, that we can start getting the ball rolling on. So, yeah, to touch on that, that's the thing that I think is really cool and important and um, hopefully we'll see some movement on this year. All right. Well, that would be excellent. Um, for now, we'll leave you with uh, a little plug, a little plug for the old Patreon if you like the show and you would like some bonus episodes and content and all that kind of jazz. Uh, you can get on over to patreon.com slash Vista. Uh, also, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Stitcher and all the apps, all the things that you like and listen to your podcast through. I mean, let's be real. You're listening to this one right now. You've probably got that part sorted.
Uh, so we will say a huge thank you to Tim for joining us. And uh, like we said, we would like to get you back and talk some more. Absolutely. Love to. So thanks very much for your time. Should we say uh, follow Tim on Twitter at BurgerDrome? Yes, absolutely. Please do oh, follow you, Tim. Theory. Please do follow Tim on Twitter. We will we will stick some of those details in there. If you've got questions for Tim about unions, um, get at him on there, and I'm sure he will answer at least some of them. Several. I will probably redirect you to a much more knowledgeable source, but I will do what I can. But it'll still be helpful. All right. So on that note, folks, uh, thank you very much, and we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers.